Episode 1, Charting Coronavirus and Implications for Health Plans Welcome to Liberation Lab, where we invite the brightest minds in healthcare and technology to share their expertise and thought leadership with our aerial community. Our inaugural episode, Charting Coronavirus and Implications for Health Plans, was recorded on Monday, April 6, 2020. To lead the discussion, we've invited Terry Klein, an epidemiologist, Med Decision Advisory Board member, and longtime partner to give us some fascinating and valuable perspectives around what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic and the implications it may have on our healthcare ecosystem. Terry recently retired as President and CEO of Health Alliance Plan and was previously the Executive Vice President of the Henry Ford Health System in Michigan. Over her distinguished career with leading health plans and health systems, including a number of the Blues Plans and United Healthcare, she has led care management programs and held a number of operational leadership roles. Additionally, Terry previously served as MedDecision's Chairman of the Board of Directors. Deb asked me to spend some time just talking about the pandemic in kind of a high level. We'll talk about some of the state policies and federal policies that are really helping us flatten the curve. We'll talk about a little epidemiology around the outbreak. And then we'll also talk about how our providers and payers are preparing themselves for what is happening and what will happen as we continue through this epidemic. And then we'll talk a little bit to wrap up about some of the implications we might see in health plans going forward. What I wanted to just do is briefly give you a status as of today, and I'm sure many of you are glued to the TV and watching this, but this morning, um, even since Regina upped the numbers for me, the worldwide count is now about 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, and there are about 71,000 deaths worldwide now. And that number is more than two times what it was a week ago today. So this is a, a disease that is affecting a lot of people. I think the last count I saw were that there were about 180 countries that were impacted. And I think that would be almost as many as we have in the world. In the U.S., we now have just passed the 10,000 death mark. And we had this morning, we had 9,655 cases um, identified, I'm, I'm sorry, 336,000 cases identified. I'm sure that number is up by now. But the death toll is four times what it was a week ago. So we are escalating at a lot faster pace than the rest of the world because we were a little bit slower to, um, to move into an outright epidemic in the U.S. The hot spots today are clearly New York City. But also, you can see that there are hot spots in Detroit, my, uh, my recent home, um, Chicago, a place that I've lived and has, a big HC, or has the big HCSC office and has many med decision employees. And then Louisiana, New Orleans has been really hard hit stemming from the Mardi Gras celebration there. And then you'll see in South Florida, there's also quite a, quite a hot spot developing. And then on the West Coast, Washington, of course, where the first cases were in the U.S. and Los Angeles, even though California locked itself down early on, they still are doing incredibly well overall as a state, but they do have some hot spots in Southern California and in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's really important to kind of look at the geographic distribution of the disease in the U.S. because when other countries like Italy and Spain report their numbers, 
I think those are those are much smaller populations, and you can you can see them as a as a as a common epidemic. But in the U.S., we're going to have geographic hotspots, and that's one of the reasons that federal and state policy doesn't really line up here. And you probably have been hearing a lot about, well, why doesn't federal government just create one uniform policy across the country? And I think if you look at this map, there's still, I think, nine states that don't have stay-at-home orders in place. But you have states on here where there are very few cases. And in that instance, you can have a much different policy than locking down the entire um, population. So I think it's really important to think about this as multiple outbreaks And that's how we'll move through this. So when you hear people talk about the surge happening this week, and that will hit our surge numbers and the apex of the curve of cases and deaths, you can assume that that might be an overall average, but every state will move through this slightly differently. Like in my state, in Georgia, we're not expecting the apex or the surge to happen until late April. And some states I've seen um, surges in uh, May. So it will happen for a while and it won't be uniform across the country. When you look at coronavirus across the world, every probably seen all these um, reports every day about new cases and also the fact that we need to flatten the curve. What you see on the left side of this graph is really just some graphing of the different countries and the, the rate at which they increase their cases. And you'll see that uh, the the turquoise color is the U.S. And um, we are clearly still on a steep incline in terms of the number of cases we have. And you want to really flatten that curve. So if you look at China, the red line at about 80,000 cases, you'll see that they, they went up and they were able to flatten their curve through the things that they put in place to stop the spread of the disease. Now, one of the things that I find really interesting about this is that China has now started opening up some of this geographic territory. And today I saw a picture of just hordes and hordes of Chinese people um, going to um, historical sites um, and visiting them again. And it makes me wonder if they'll see an uptick in cases again, because as they've relaxed their social isolation, they'll probably end up having more cases and transmission of those cases. And so You'll, you'll end up with something that many people call an opportunity to see cases go up, clamp down on them, and then you'll see many outbreaks happen. So we'll just watch these, these curves and see if we can actually uh, flatten them rather than continuing to go upwards in the U.S. Regina, thanks. So flattening the curve, why is it really important and why are we asking everybody to stay home, self-isolate? Uh, and really stop the transmission of the disease. And the reason it's so important to do this is because the healthcare system in the U.S. is not really prepared for the surge in cases. When you look at what's happening in New York City, you see that they don't have enough beds. They don't have enough ICU beds. They don't have enough med surge beds. They don't have enough um, PPE supplies, personal protective equipment. They don't have enough ventilators and they don't have enough healthcare workers. And every community that I've been involved with is doing their own planning around when they think the surge will hit, what they think that means in terms of the beds they'll need versus the beds they have, the supplies they need versus the supplies they have. And they're trying to build relationships with companies in their um, geographies 
to start producing some of these things. So there are lots of companies that have started producing um, personal protective equipment, masks, um, gowns. Um, there are companies that have been working on ventilators and putting into production ventilators. You hear about some of them on the national news, but there are also a lot of local companies that have stepped up and have been creating the face shields that you see on TV uh, and also um, all the supplies. And then the thing that I think is most interesting is in the healthcare worker space. There are calls out now for people who are retired physicians and nurses to come back to work. And there are, you know, both efforts at the national level to staff these national uh, hospitals that are being built or the army deployed hospitals. And sometimes um, there are now companies that are working to staff those that are actually asking people to leave their current nursing positions and join. And I've seen upwards of $9,000 a week as a salary for people who are willing to um, leave their current nursing jobs and go to New York City to staff some of the hospitals that are being built. So of course, that will create extra pressure in the, in the markets they leave. So when we go to flatten the curve, it's really important that we realize we're doing this in order to really help the healthcare system. And one of the things that you might hear is a term called hammer and the dance. And the hammer is to really come down really hard on social isolation and making sure we're doing the social distancing that will be the hammer that helps us get the virus under control. And then as we loosen up and everybody goes back to work and doing the things they're doing and stops being six feet apart, we'll start seeing small outbreaks and that will be the dance because then we'll have to figure out how we control this until we have a vaccine in a way that is more of a dance so we can get part of our country back to work. So when I think about what's next, I think the first and most important thing that we need to control this outbreak is more and rapid COVID-19 testing. So you're hearing a lot of really great things about companies stepping up and helping with testing. And in fact, one of the ones we've heard the most about recently, I think, is Abbott coming out with a little desktop machine that can be used in a healthcare setting that can do fairly rapid testing. It still takes about 15 minutes to get a result, but um, that's much better than sending the specimen out and waiting a couple of days to get results. But with that Abbott testing, the machines are out in the marketplace, but there are not that many of them. And it will be weeks until that testing is really able to, the devices will be deployed in a way that we can actually count on that testing to be at scale. But I think that rapid testing really means getting a test in our homes that people can take and understand whether they can self-administer and they can understand whether they're positive or negative very rapidly. And then we need to work on understanding the level of immunity that we have in our system. It's believed that about 25% of the cases of COVID-19 are asymptomatic, that a person never knows they had the disease. And then another 25% of the cases may be mild. And so nobody takes, um, nobody really gets medical care, but knows that they were sick. And it's going to be really important for us to understand the antibodies that people have built in their systems to fight this disease, because it's presumed that if you've had COVID-19, you will not get it again. It's not certain, um, but that is the presumption that many people have looking at this virus. And so knowing who has had the disease and who is immune from getting it a second time will help us understand how we um, go forward um, until we have a vaccine available widely and make sure that this um, is not a virus that overwhelms us. 
I think that one of the things, can you go back a minute, Regina? Yes, thanks. So one of the things that's going to be really important to us as we think about the hammer and then the dance as we move into the dance phase is to understand how we surveil cases, because it will be very important to identify when we identify a case to be able to track every single contact that that case has had in the last two weeks and, and have make sure that we can isolate those people who are exposed so that we can break the chain of transmission. And that will be a, the very most important part of getting into the dance phase after we've um, gotten through this very difficult phase of just shutting down our entire um, society. And then the last thing is the vaccine development. And I, I know that you're going to have um, a more thorough discussion on the vaccine development coming up in the next few weeks. But right now, there are, are dozens of companies that are working on vaccines and we do have the advantage of having had other coronaviruses. Um, so there are some companies that got pretty far down the path with Ebola vaccines. And so hopefully that we'll have some rapid development with vaccines. And there are some that are already in clinical trials. But at best, a vaccine probably is 12 to 18 months away. So one of the things that I've been doing a lot of thinking about is what are some of the impacts for health plans? We certainly see what's happening to providers now. They're absolutely overrun with, with patients. But for health plans, it's a slightly different story. I think, you know, all health plans have gone to remote workforces to the best that they can. And that is as challenging for them as it is for all of us. I think there's some fundamental changes in the way medical management works. I mean, a lot of uh, organizations have dropped some of their pre-admission requirements I think you can deploy your medical management teams when you're a payer to do different things. A payer that I'm involved with now has taken um, their nursing staff and they are, they are actually touching base every single day with their um, most vulnerable patients. They've got remote monitoring in many of their homes now so that they can make sure without going into their homes that they can ascertain the safety of their patients and their members. And I think that there'll be some, I think, very interesting things that come out of our work in medical management today that will change how we deliver it in the future. I think medical costs are another interesting thing to think about. Initial reports out I saw were that costs would increase between 2 and 40%. And that just was sort of stunning to me. That's a wide range. But it also just didn't seem realistic to me. On the provider side, when providers stop doing elective procedures, their revenues plummet. And those revenues to a, a provider are the cost to an insurance company. So I think there will be really big reduction in medical costs related to elective procedures, which just cannot happen and will get rescheduled. But there's only so much capacity, so they cannot all get rescheduled before the end of the year. I think there will be increased costs related to COVID-19, but I don't think those are going to really overwhelm the payer system compared to the reductions in um, elective procedures. I do think there is going to be a lot of disruption in the commercial market. People are losing their jobs. They will go off coverage. Um, they won't be able to afford to go on COBRA, so they'll drop coverage. It'll take them a while to get on Medicaid or on an exchange. And so I think there'll be a lot of dislocation in the membership ranks of most payers. And many of them are just now thinking about their 2021 um, rate filings for the exchange products and Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. And those rate filings will have to go in in the next few weeks to few months, depending on the products. So that will be also something that they're struggling with. There are lots of regulatory changes taking place and just keeping up with them is tough. 
And then the quality programs, there's a lot of issues around STARS, HEDIS, and risk adjustment. And I'm sure that you all are familiar with those programs, but they're ways that health plans are paid. And at this point in time, um, CMS has given some guidance to plans that they will, because HEDIS and STAR collection will not happen this year in the same way it has uh, historically, that they can go back to their 2018 results. I think that for some plans, that will be good news. For some plans, that's bad news. Um, For all of us, it's uncertainty. And then I think that a big impact to payers will be working with their delivery systems, their provider networks. Most of the federal funding has gone to health systems and through health systems. The independent physicians are having a very difficult time keeping their practices open. And I think it will fundamentally change the way independent physicians can practice, and that will impact payers in a very significant way. And then the last thing I wanted to kind of just um, throw out is is that beyond, if you look even beyond health plans and and delivery systems right now in terms of what's happening, I think it's really a good time for us to start thinking about what fundamental changes will happen to us post-COVID-19. Because there are a lot of things that are happening very fast now. Some things, you know, I feel like with telehealth and telemedicine, the genie's out of the bottle. I think it's going to be really hard for anybody to relax the rules enough to stuff it back in the bottle. The payment changes that have happened in Medicare, I think, are have fundamentally helped change telehealth and telemedicine overnight. And I think that will be a, a continued change. I think there are a lot of other regulatory reliefs that have happened that may impact how we operate going forward. I think about some of the scope of practice laws. I think about physicians being able to treat patients over state lines um, and having licensure that goes across state lines. Um, in some ways, it's kind of silly to me that you can only practice in one state, not other states. And I think some of that may not change as we go back to um, business as usual. I think, I, I hope actually, that primary care will never happen in an emergency room again. I, as Deb said, I just worked in Detroit. That was my last stop. And there, the Detroit residents are just used to using the ER as a, a, its first stop in emergency, in um, primary care. And I believe today nobody could get primary care in an emergency room and they wouldn't want to. They'll find new ways to do it. And I'm hoping that that might stay because it's not a good place to get primary care. I personally believe that there will be big changes in our supply chain. Right now, we're having trouble getting enough masks. We don't have production in the U.S. for a lot of these things. We've offshored production and many of our basic um, medicines and supplies for healthcare. And I, I think that will change how we do that. I'm hoping that we'll have a stronger public health system. Um, I think we've been behind the curve on this epidemic almost from the beginning. And so I, th- I think there'll be, I hope there'll be some fundamental changes. In fact, this weekend, I saw a 2005 pandemic plan that was put together by the federal government and never really put into to practice, which is, is kind of sad. And then I think there'll be differences in the way we do pandemic uh, planning and resource sharing. On every one of my corporate boards, I've gone back and looked at our risk profiles to see, did we ever think about a pandemic? And did we do anything about it? And it turns out on every single one of those risk scoring methodologies, we listed pandemic as being a big risk, but its probability was so low that it never made um, the top 10 or 20 risks that we focus resources on. So I'm hoping that as we look at regional pandemic planning and resource sharing, we'll do a better job of 
of taking systems, hospital systems that don't necessarily report to the same people and getting them together to do more regional planning rather than everybody having their own resource plan around pandemics. Um, And then I am very worried about independent practice physicians and whether or not they can survive this. It will depend on how long it goes and whether or not uh, they just end up with financial pressures that are too large and have to um, align with systems. And then the last thing that I think is a really interesting place for us to think about is the loss of personal privacy and freedoms. After 9-11, there were lots of personal freedoms that we lost. And I'm assuming that when we look at how we come out of COVID-19, that there'll be other personal um, privacy and freedoms that we, we give up in order for us to have a better um, process going forward. So those are just the, the few comments that I wanted to share this afternoon, and I'd be happy to answer questions when we get to the Q&A. Now we're opening it up to Q&A today. We did have a couple of questions come in during the chat while we were on the line here. Um, the first one has to do with the efficacy of the, I'm going to, you're really testing me, hydro, hydroxychloroquine, Yes, it's being pushed hard by the president of the task force, yet it isn't FDA approved. What do you think about the efficacy of that? So I do believe that we have a physician on the line. So I think, Terry, if if I'm over my skis, just jump in. But um, when I look at hydroxychloroquine, it is a drug that's available today. It's used as an antimalarial. It's also used for lupus and arthritis. And it has been on the market a long time. There's a lot of interest in using it. There are a number of clinical trials that have already been started. I think it's really important that if you're using the drug that you document how you're using it so we can go back and look at it or participate in a clinical trial. I know that my former employer, Henry Ford Health System, is engaged in a clinical trial around using it as a prophylactic measure. Um, and they're enrolling healthcare workers and first responders at this point in time in that study. And we'll be running that study for about eight weeks after they start it to be able to figure out whether or not fewer healthcare workers actually contract the disease using it. So it can be used in both ways. It's used off-label at the moment or under one of the clinical trials. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Terry McGinnis, are you on the line? I wasn't sure. Yes, I am. I, I don't think I, think I could add anything else besides what Terry said. I think the big thing is it is now actively in clinical trials, and we just need to see how that pans out. I think there's quite a few drugs that are beginning to at least come to the attention. I was looking at BioArchive where we're actually trying to use some of our newer, I would say, AI machine learning kind of techniques to see where there might be drugs that could be repurposed that are already out there in the supply chain that might actually hit various mechanisms. So I think that that is an active area that we're looking at. But um, even though there has been a lot of of hype around hydroxyquinone and uh, some of the others, I think we're still going to have to kind of look and see. So I think it's smart that we're using them and we're looking at the data and see what the clinical trials tell us in terms of whether they really are making an impact and at what stage and in which patients. I think also uh, one of the things that I would just mention is uh, I'm beginning to see more efforts now around beginning to pair the genetics of patients with why some patients are getting very severe disease, why, as Terry mentioned, there's some that are asymptomatic 
And I think that beginning to unravel that side of it, it paired with the medications and which ones might begin to work at different stages as we go forward are going to help us. Thank you very much. Terry, um, the next question has to do about the insurance exchange. Do you see states reopening the insurance exchange because of the overall rate of job loss? So, you know, if you have an event like a job loss, you qualify. It's a change in your status that automatically allows you to qualify. So whether states open their exchanges up or not, when you have a qualifying event, you can you, you have the opportunity to go on the exchange. Okay, thank you. Um, another question about um, what is driving the difficulties for private practice doctors? If you could address that, please. So what I see happening is that routine care and elective procedures have just plummeted to near zero. So, um, and most physician offices have not been historically set up on telemedicine. So even if you're a primary care physician and you might still have patients who want to see you, they're all struggling with how they see their patients. Some physicians I know are FaceTiming their patients. Some are trying really hard to to keep seeing some patients however they can, but many practices are just closed. And then if you um, are a independent physician who depends on doing surgeries or procedures, that you know has come to a standstill with all the elective procedures that have been stopped in order to preserve the protective gear for clinicians who are in um, emergencies. Thank you. Um, I'm going to switch to technology, and maybe these questions are best for David Lundy or Brett Lansing. Um, We have a number of questions about the Zoom security. The first one is if there's plans to communicate our new controls to clients and prospects. And then um, kind of related to that, will we be putting out a client-facing statement? So that might be also a question for you, Peter. Hi, this is uh, this is David. I think I'll defer to Peter and or Ellen on the client-facing statement. I'm sure that there's something that they're uh, working on putting together. I know Peter did a, a ton of research and provided some really fantastic information. But as far as providing that information to our current clients and our prospects, um, I, I'm sure that we can come up with something quickly to just alleviate some concerns that they may have about our security settings. We are running the, the highest security settings that we can possibly with Zoom. So I would think that we would have that out this week. Yeah, short answer is it's in progress. And thanks for the question. I think it's really important. Um, it is in progress. And additionally, we're building out a page on the community about Zoom and even how to use the different controls and things like that, which may be uh, new to a lot of our customers. Great, thank you. Sure. Um, the next question, Terry, is back to you. As we see an increase in unemployment and a shift from commercial exchange coverage for government and Medicaid, there is potentially a gap where individuals are not covered. Because of that, do you see providers developing new strategies using care coordination to minimize uncompensated care? What's well, a good question? don't know that I really understand the answer, though, at this point in time. I think whenever you have a dislocation of employees in the Michigan market, I've, I've watched this when unions go on strike and all of a sudden everybody loses their coverage and then they get it back. And so you have to work through how you take care of these patients. If they're COVID-19 patients, the answer is a lot clearer and that the government has said that if COVID-19 patients need to have testing or treatment that, that they'll use some of the recent bailout dollars 
um, to cover that. So at least as it relates to hospital systems, I think um, they'll be fine. It's always difficult when people lose their coverage, but I'm sure that providers will help in finding ways for um, patients to get coverage. Great. The next question relates to testing. And one of the um, comments was that in Central Florida, testing sites are being told by the federal government that they can only administer 250 tests per day. Why would they not want as many as people as many people as possible to get tested who have symptoms? So I don't think it's a matter of not wanting them to be tested. I think that it's a matter of our supply line is not strong enough. So even though we can do a lot more tests today than we could a week ago or two weeks ago, we still cannot do, we don't have the capacity in this country to test 350 million people. So I was talking with a provider group this morning who said that they still have a couple of day backlog on the tests that they have sent off to be run. So unless you can shorten the capacity or the the time to get tests read, you can't, I mean, there's no reason to put more in the pipeline. And so that's probably why the the restrictions are in place rather than the fact that we don't want people to be tested. Great. We do need to save those tests, the capacity we have. We need to save for people who are healthcare um, workers, first responders, and people who who believe that they have the test. So today we don't have enough capacity to just let people be tested so that they can figure out whether they have it or not, if they think they don't, if they don't have symptoms. Um, the next question was for Jennifer Pomsky. What type of personal privacies do you think will change post-COVID-19? First, personal privacy that's definitely going to change is we all will know each other's houses and families. I think we will have a deeper understanding of each other in the workplace. I know that's not a legal situation, but I do believe we've all gotten to know each other much better. And as you Some of you might know I'm sitting inside my closet right now, so I know a number of the ELT have a personal knowledge of my personal closet, okay? But stepping back and talking more about privacy, I think there will be some legislative action which will allow for privacy issues to be dealt with much faster in the future when there are emerging situations like this. I think there's a lot of uncertainty as what to do, and I think there will be laws that will change that will, in the future, make it much faster to be able to know um, how to handle situations like this. I just think it's not right now on everyone's front burner, but I think it will definitely come up. Terry, did you have a perspective on that as well? Yeah, so I had a, an opportunity to talk with Dr. Feinberg, who's the CEO of Haven, last week, and he had a very interesting perspective. Haven, as you know, is part Google, and Google has tried really hard to to help with technology on a de-identified basis so they can track people de-identified. In fact, many of you have probably seen the map that shows all the party goers in South Florida and where their cell phones went. And it's all de-identified data, but it gives us a really good view into where the next hotspots may be because of the transmission of the disease. And so I think that in other countries, they've been able to use cell phones to actually track people, to know that they're not staying at their quarantine if they're supposed to. And I think that those may be ways that technology could be used. And I think Google says that they're doing everything they can to advance the knowledge using de-identified data. But at some point in time, I think there'll be a big push to use identified data from cell phones to know whether or not people are staying quarantined and to be able to really hammer down the outbreaks when we get into the dance phase of the hammer and the dance. 
Deb, I think that we've seen, um, you know, some uh, relaxing of not only the punitive aspects of privacy, like malpractice and things of that nature, but also some specific relaxing of HIPAA laws. Um, I don't think we really know yet what the full extent of all of that is going to be. But the underlying issue here is the infamous prisoner's dilemma, the X and Y game. You know, we all learned this at some point, most of us in college. It's you know, the extent to which our individual data really has value, uh, not to, to act against us personally, but to provide oversight and information about the larger public health status. And I think that's going to be a raging debate as we come out of this. A good example may be the fact that today there are physicians FaceTiming patients. That FaceTime has nearly the security around it that you would need to be able to do, um, to keep privacy around uh, medical data. But in the ability to allow people to get care in this very stressful time, that is a tool that's being allowed. And so I think we're going to roll back some of that and some of it will probably become, some elements will become places where we lose some of our privacy. So back on that, uh, Terry, I think think a lot of it is public opinion drives law. And what we've seen now is where the rollback of privacy is dramatically helping um, improve, you know, flattening the curve. We all have heard, read about the articles on the thermometer use where collecting the thermometer data has shown where hotspots are emerging or not. And so I think collectively, the population has to understand that by participating in providing data you can also flatten the curve. It's not just about protecting, it's also about being active and participating in providing data that will help some of this. So I think there will be a change in attitude, which is fundamentally the most important thing. I agree with you. I mean, I think it will be very common for us to have our temperatures taken as we go um, into airports, into stadiums, into all kinds of places um, in order for us to protect the whole. Well, um, we are at time. Thank you so much, Terry. I'm going to turn it over to Deb for some final comments. We do have a number of outstanding questions. We will work separately to get those answered and make sure everyone um, gets that information. So back to you, Deb. Okay, super. Well, I'll just close by thanking Terry Klein. Thank you so much, Terry, for your insights about all of this. And we as a company are still finding our way trying to figure out what we can do to be most supportive to all of our clients and to each other. There's no time like um, the current times that we're in where our ability to exercise our core values, to be innovative and to provide leadership is, is more important than now. So I want to thank all of you for participating today and Terry for some great insights. Looks like with all the questions coming in, we could have gone on for another hour, but we appreciate your spending the time pulling this together for us and sharing your, your thoughts with our team. And uh, to all of the rest of you, stay safe, stay healthy and keep your chin up. And we'll talk to you all very soon again next week, actually. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the first episode of Liberation Lab, hosted by Ariel by MedDecision. Visit liberate.health and subscribe for regular industry news, views, and events.